Welcome to Humanities Now, the official podcast of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. We're glad to have you back with us after our short hiatus for winter break. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Borshuk, Associate Professor in the Department of English and Director of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. Humanities Now features monthly conversations with members of the humanities community here at TTU. With every episode, these varied voices help us realize the center's mission, asking out loud, what does it mean to be human, and demonstrating how we can answer that question from so many different perspectives. Since 2015, one of the central initiatives in the center's broad support for TTU's humanities faculty has been our annual Alumni College Fellowship Competition. Awarded each spring, these fellowships fund individual scholarly projects. With no restrictions on how these projects might be conceptualized or what disciplines they represent, Alumni College has supported work in literary translation and eco-criticism, wide-ranging international archival research across historical periods, qualitative studies in linguistics and rhetoric, and so many other groundbreaking academic interventions. Traditionally, the Alumni College cycle culminates in a public event scheduled during TTU's homecoming week in October, an evening of community and conversation when our most recent cohort of fellows present their work in a series of informal talks. This past fall, the COVID-19 pandemic forced the cancellation of our annual face-to-face event, as the Center maintained physical distancing in the interest of public safety. While we're hopeful that we'll be back together in person come next October, we also remain committed to our ongoing mission of outreach and open conversation. The Humanities Center at Texas Tech not only helps support the development of new ideas, but we want to see those ideas shared. With that in mind, our next four episodes of Humanities Now will showcase this year's Alumni College Fellows. Between now and May, we have arranged our 12 scholars into four audio panels, all speaking under the broad banner, New Perspectives On. For this, our February installment, our topic is New Perspectives on History and Society. In the following segments, we'll hear from a historian, a sociologist, and a musicologist as they direct us back into the past and illuminate new ways of looking at how societies are organized. Along the way, we'll hear provocative conversation about the threats that social organization sometimes inaugurates, the added peril technology represents, and the place of culture in any understanding of these complicated human interactions. All of this after a short break. Did you know that you can donate directly to the Humanity Center at Texas Tech? Gifts to our Excellence Fund supplement the generous funding we receive from the President's Office, the Provost's Office, and the Office of the Vice President for Research and Innovation. Your gift supports the free programming we offer, including online seminars, local film showings, art exhibitions, and a wide array of visiting speakers. Donations also help promote faculty research like that featured on today's show, or allow us to support graduate students in the humanities by funding participation in national conferences and seminars. And it helps pay for this show. If you're interested in donating to the Humanities Center, please visit our website, humanitycenter.ttu.edu, and click on the big red donate button on the front page. Thank you. 
First up on the show today is the historian Richard Luchens. Richard specializes in the history of modern Germany. His first book, Submerged on the Surface, was published in 2019 and examines the daily experiences of life in hiding for the 1,700 Berlin Jews who survived the Holocaust by fleeing deportation and living in the shadows of the capital of Nazi Germany. In his recent research, Richard focuses on the role played by perpetrators of so-called ordinary crime in the exploitation of Jewish Germans in the years from the Nazi seizure of power until the end of the last major deportations from Germany in March 1943. Here's Richard to tell you more about this project. Hello, my name is Dr. Richard Luchens, Assistant Professor of History here at Texas Tech University. My uh, project a research project I, I titled Perpetrators of Ordinary Crime in the Persecution of Jewish Germans, 1933 to 1945. Uh, this current project looks at the role played by so-called ordinary perpetrators of crime in the persecution of Jewish Germans in Nazi Germany. And the origins of this project actually got going when I was in graduate school and doing research for my dissertation. And I think that's how it often happens. You're researching one thing and you keep coming across other files that pique your interest. And I'd like to share the first story I came across all those years back because even at the time, it really caught my interest and it forms the basis of what I want to do. The story begins in December 1942, when Berlin's 71st police precinct issued a citywide bulletin notifying authorities to be on the lookout for two well-dressed young men in their early to mid-twenties. At approximately 12.30 in the afternoon on December 7th, these two men, posing as agents of the Gestapo, had forced their way into the apartment of Berta and Joseph R. Only Berta was at home at the time. After showing Berta what appeared to be legitimate credentials. These two men began to search the apartment. They claimed they had come in response to a report that her husband, a former tailor, who at the time was working as a mechanics assistant, was illegally taking on tailoring jobs. The older of the two men instructed his partner to continue the search and left to pick up a car. Now, despite Berta's protest, the younger of the two men spent the next two hours searching the entire apartment. He then ordered Berta to follow him into her sister's room, telling her to behave. When she protested, he grabbed her violently by the throat, threw her into the room, and shut the door. Thinking that he had locked her in the room, Berta began to cry for help. After a few minutes, she realized that the door was not locked, however, and when she came out of the room, she encountered a neighbor who had come in response to Berta's cries and who earlier had seen the men heading to the apartment. The men posing as Gestapo agents were by this time gone, but they had absconded with somewhere between 800 and 1,000 Reichsmarks worth of goods. Investigation into the identity of the perpetrators began the following day, when Joseph R. appeared at the police precinct to report the crime. Joseph, Berta, and the neighbor were all interviewed, and for the next three and a half months, police investigated the case of the men who had impersonated Gestapo agents and committed robbery, but to no avail. On March 2nd, 1943, the senior prosecutor charged with overseeing the case decided to shelve it due to lack of progress. He asked the police to notify him should circumstances change. The file ends here. 
And yet, even if the police eventually had been successful in tracking down the perpetrators, the main witness would not have been able to testify. Because on March 3rd, 1943, Berta R. was deported on the 33rd deportation transport to Auschwitz. Her husband, Joseph, had been deported to Auschwitz the previous day, and that's because Berta and Joseph were Jewish. At the time of the robbery at the apartment of Joseph and Berta R., Nazi Germany was actually at the height of its power. Its domination stretched from deep in Soviet territory to the Atlantic coast, from North Africa to the Arctic Circle. At home, the regime's authority was near absolute as it had crushed or cowed major sources of political dissent. Hitler was fulfilling his dream of creating an Aryan racial empire and seemed to be doing so at an alarming speed. By 1942, end of 1942, deportation trains had been taking Jews from Germany to ghettos and camps in the East for almost 14 months, and Berlin's Jewish population had been reduced to less than half of what it had been on the eve of the deportations. Yet, even with the annihilation of the Jews underway, Berlin's police force, which was short on staff and supposedly engaged in a war against the Jews for the German people's very existence, still launched an investigation into the robbery of Berta and Joseph R. And this investigation lasted more than three months. Nor was this the only crime against Jews to occupy the force's energies, even as the deportations were in full swing. And although German police files from the time are incomplete, records show that the German police did not hesitate to pursue cases involving Jewish victims of crime, even at a time when the shrinking of the domestic police force required the authorities to make conscious decisions about which cases merited investigation. Indeed, German Jewish victims of ordinary crime continued to receive significant attention from the police. Now, this is the first story that got me interested in the topic of what one might best term ordinary crime. And what I'm really hoping to do is examine the relationship between the perpetrators of ordinary crimes and their Jewish victims, as well as the Nazi state's reaction to what has often been referred to as normal criminality in Nazi Germany. On the one hand, it might seem bizarre, even problematic, to discuss ordinary crime committed against Jews in a state as murderous as Nazi Germany. Jews, of course, were anything but ordinary victims under Hitler's regime, and the crimes the Nazis committed against them are well documented. You have, for example, white-collar criminal exploitation and Aryanization of Jewish-owned businesses. You have the deportations to the ghettos and camps, and finally, mass murder aimed at extermination. And when put in that context, the psychological and financial effects of ordinary crimes on individuals such as Berta and Joseph R. do not at first glance appear markedly different from the effects of certain Nazi-sanctioned crimes in the early stages of Nazi rule. And moreover, we have to take great care not to allow the disturbing national socialist definition of crime, underpinned as it was by discussions of race and, and genetics, to cloud a discussion of behavior that, from the perspective of both Jewish victims and our own contemporary outlook, was in fact criminal. Robbery, looting, physical, including sexual assault, but it's essential to keep in mind that the Nazis were not the only Germans who engaged in criminal behavior during the Third Reich. 
nor were all Germans who committed crimes against Jews motivated only by anti-Semitism. And ultimately, one can tell a great deal about a society by looking at how it talks about and responds to issues of crime. And so what I'm hoping to do with my research is to trace the evolution of how the Nazis responded to issues of ordinary crimes committed against Jews over the course of Nazi Germany's 12-year history. In particular, I want my research, hopefully, to answer three interconnected questions. First, in what ways did ordinary criminals further weaken and undermine the already deteriorating position of Jews in Nazi Germany during the 30s and early 40s? And what was the role of the Nazi state, intentionally and unintentionally, in promoting such behavior? Second, in what ways did the actions and desires of these criminals put them in direct competition with the Nazi state, and in doing so, complicate the state's own project of persecution and exploitation? And third, what were the options and responses of Jewish victims of ordinary crime? And and that, to me, is essential because Jews could and often did differentiate between what might be called the quote-unquote legal crimes of the Nazis, against which they had little or no recourse, and the illegal crimes committed by these ordinary perpetrators for which Jews could and did turn to the authorities for help, even if little came of it. Because even after 10 years of Nazi terror, as the deportation trains rolled east, as rumors of the camps began to trickle back home, as near daily regulations bore down ever harder upon them, Jewish Germans were still able to make some sense of how Nazi Germany functioned, what its limits were, and what, if any, courses of action were open to them. They were not passive when they knew something could be done. Indeed, Jewish victims of ordinary crime not only turned to the authorities for help in cases of exploitation, but also were capable of outright physical resistance when these ordinary crimes threatened to turn violent. This is behavior that counters the idea of Jewish passivity in the face of an all-powerful state. And I am very excited to be pursuing this research topic. Again, I think there's a lot we can learn about examining how the Nazis approached the non-state sanctioned criminal exploitation of German Jews. And I think it's important to keep in mind that, like everything else in Nazi Germany, the state's response likely went through an evolution between 1933 and and 1945. And so I'd like to know, for example, how did ordinary criminal tactics change with response to Jewish victims? How soon did criminals, as defined by the Nazi state, specifically turn to exploitation of Jews? And did this shift parallel a shift among supposedly respectable and non-criminal elements in the German population and how they treated their own neighbors? These questions and hopefully I will have a lot more, remind us of the importance of tracing, continuity, and adaptation under the extraordinary circumstances of everyday life in Nazi Germany, even with respect to crime. For although Jews certainly were not ordinary victims in Nazi Germany, they still could be victims of ordinary crime. Thank you, Richard. Richard's work offers a provocative perspective on the grave ways that state violence and individual malice intersect. 
Our next guest, sociologist Ori Swed, provides a lens on more contemporary threats by scrutinizing the proliferation of drone technology and its adoption by non-state actors across the globe. Here's Ori to tell you more about this research. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Ori Swed, an assistant professor from the sociology department at Texas Tech. I study security, peace, and conflict. I'm here to talk about one of my projects. That specific project is conducted in collaboration with Kerry Chavez, a PhD student from the political science department at Texas Tech. The project involves an idea, a term. In 1922, the sociologist William Ogburn coined the term cultural lag when he tried to explain social change. He identified a particular social change process related to the introduction of new technologies. He explained the gap that emerged between the adoption of new technology and culture that lags behind it. It takes time for society and its culture to process and to understand the implication and repercussions of this new technology. So we're talking about gap in law, gap in social behavior, and gaps in security. And it takes time for society to actually follow through and adopt to that change. So this project explores one of those situations. The project started to answer a recent development that reshaped the security landscape as we understand it, focusing on civilian and commercial drone technology and its proliferation. That sort of technology, due to its high utility and low cost, made it very popular as a toy, hobby, and as a commercial tool among multiple industries and sections. It also opened the door for violent non-state actors to utilize the same kind of technology for their own ends. When I talk about violent non-state actors, I talk about a broad group of organizations that regularly use violence to promote political or other types of agenda. We talk about terrorist groups, we talk about insurgents, we talk about rebels, uh, we talk also about criminal organizations. For the most part, the field of security considered the realm of air, the aerial dimension, as a state domain, something that only state can influence and they can influence it in a particular kind of way. More than that, it's a realm where rebel groups, insurgents, terrorists, and criminal organizations uh, could not really overcome the technological and financial barriers and obstacles uh, in terms of getting that sort of technology and air capabilities. However, the recent proliferation of drone technology changed that picture. There were few instances in the past of terrorist organizations or other non-state actors utilizing drone technology, but they were few and not really uh, successful. One of the most prominent one took place in 1994 when Um Shinrikyo, a Japanese terrorist group, attempted to disperse sarin gas 
on Tokyo Citizen using minicopter engineered for crop spraying. Those plans did not materialize eventually. But since then, we saw a rise in attempts by those types of actors and a dramatic increase in actually usage and success. So, for example, we have Hezbollah, a Lebanese terrorist organization, a violent non-state actor that uh, developed very advanced drone capacities. We have uh, Hamas, another organization that operates in the Gaza Strip that has been using drones to drop bombs on uh, Israeli tanks, for example. Um, a rebel group weaponized a simple drone, uh, putting explosives of, on it, and tried to assassinate the Venezuelan President uh, Maduro uh, in an event that was caught on camera. ISIS, the notorious terrorist group, has been using drones extensively with hundreds of sorties against Iraqi and Syrian forces, against the, the, the Kurds and Americans that fought them. Uh, they were very successful with those attempts. They were even able to destroy Russian jet fighters in one of those sorties. Today, we can see that this type of technology is uh, spread beyond those instances. And we see rebel groups in Libya using it in, in the Libyan civil war that's happening right now. We see the Taliban in Afghanistan utilizing that technology. Jihadist groups across Africa, drug lords in Mexico and Latin America, and separatist groups in Southeast Asia. To put it simply, at present, violent non-state actors gain limited air capabilities. This is new development. The implications of, of this uh, uh, um, recent development on the security domain is meaningful. You see, generally, security architecture almost never take into account the aerial domain, simply because they never had to do it. It means that with a simple gadget that you can purchase on eBay or Target, a, a terrorist group or, or criminal organization or other violent non-state actor can overcome sophisticated and rigorous security measure and hitting a target. A rebel group can surprise government forces that are unprepared for that type of attack from above. Criminal organization can overwhelm or uh, oversmart law enforcement agents that are ill-prepared and ill-equipped to deal with that development. And terrorist organizations can attack targets that up until that point, they just could not. This gap uh, is what we address in the study. It is data-related. Well, we know that we see more of this phenomena. We don't really know how big it is. And uh, more importantly, we cannot answer even the most basic questions that can assist policymakers and practitioners in dealing with that sort of uh, trend. Questions such as, what are the preconditions for organization to adopt drone technology or not? Is this dependent on state sponsorship? Is this correspond with their uh, ideology, their particular goals? 
is this correspond with their level of innovation as an organization, their age? Maybe it's a matter of their network. Who they know and who can teach them that sort of technology and how to use it? To answer those questions and others, we start collecting data on violent non-state actor usage of drone technology all across the globe, working with multiple research assistants at the Peace, War, and Social Conflict Laboratory here in Tech. We start collecting this data from open sources. We looked at terrorist organizations, social media. We look at local news outlets of war-torn uh, countries. We looked at military reports and existing data sets that map violent non-state actors' behavior. We went over systematically a list of 2,000 different groups, violent non-state actors, creating a data set of 61 variables about 25,000 observations that cover violent non-state actors' activities from 1995 until 2019. Each variable designed to answer questions related to the uh, adoption of uh, drone technology by those actors. So we look at state sponsorship, meaning we look at how some states support terrorist organizations in terms of training them, supplying them, uh, providing them harbor and see if that, for example, correlate or associate with uh, the usage of this technology. Uh, essentially, if those states that have that sort of capabilities transfer it to those organizations, we look at their networks to see who are their allies and who are their rivals, to see maybe uh, it can transfer through this some sort of encounter. We look at prior behavior, uh, such as display of innovation, to see if innovating organization will uh, innovate again and use that sort of technology. We look at ideologies, we look at goals, we look at a, a, a level of activity as predictors. Our analysis indicate that several of those variables matter, while others, though seem that they can, they actually are not that important. We learned that while state sponsorship is not that important as a predictor, a particular sponsor having Iran as a, a state sponsor increased the likelihood of using drone technology. We learned that networks matters and they used as pathways to learn new skill sets, such as how to use and how to gain that sort of technology and knowledge. We're still studying the data set and we hope to find new and exciting findings that we will shed light on this gap and will help us produce research that will mitigate the cultural lag in security regarding this emerging threat. Thank you so much. Our final guest today is Virginia Wilton, who specializes in music of the 19th century with particular interests in French music, musical nationalism and cosmopolitanism, and the role of the press in reshaping musicians' public image during the mid-19th century. Virginia will speak about the kind of work she does as a musicologist and explain the scholarly perspective this research offers on cultural history. In addition, as she tells us here, while the COVID pandemic might have disrupted some of her travel plans as an alumni college fellow, the summer of 2020 did gift her with other unforeseen academic epiphanies. 
Hello, I'm Dr. Virginia Wilton, Assistant Professor of Musicology. I am here to talk with you about my research on women, musical collectorship, and musical culture in early 19th century Norfolk, Virginia. Before we delve into the specifics of my research, I probably should explain what a musicologist is. Like an art historian or a theater historian, a musicologist is a humanistic scholar of the arts. Musicologists study music's place in history and culture. Some of the sources we use include musical scores, periodicals, literature, letters, and even archaeological artifacts. Because many of the sources we examine are rare, even one of a kind, we often have to travel to libraries and archives to complete our work. That is why I applied for a Texas Tech Humanities Center Alumni College Fellowship. I intended to use my grant to do archival research in Germany in summer 2020. I specialize in 19th century music, and I was interested in viewing documents related to the Princess Caroline von St. Wittgenstein, the partner of the 19th century composer and virtuoso pianist Franz Liszt. I've long been interested in how the princess played a powerful role in Liszt's professional life, serving as the unacknowledged co-author of several of his books. COVID-19 made it impossible for me to travel to Europe, but as fate would have it, the pandemic trapped me in the perfect place to work on another archival research project. In late February and early March 2020, I was in Norfolk, Virginia. I suspect that if you have heard of Norfolk, it's probably not because of musicology, but because of its Navy base, which is the world's largest. Founded in the 17th century, Norfolk sits in southeastern Virginia, at the opposite end of the state from Washington, D.C. Norfolk boasts one of the world's finest natural harbors, which made it a center of international shipping even before the United States became independent. Today, Norfolk is arguably the cultural hub of the Hampton Roads region, which includes cities like Virginia Beach and Williamsburg. I may be biased, though. Norfolk also happens to be my adopted hometown. When visiting family in summer 2014, I learned, completely by chance, about the Myers Family Music Collection, which is owned by the Chrysler Museum of Art in Norfolk, Virginia. This stunning trove has more than 1,000 pieces of sheet music, and it is, as far as we know, the largest such sheet music collection assembled by any family in the United States during the first quarter of the 19th century. Most of the pieces are for keyboard, for voice and keyboard, or for harp. Music collections like this were common among middle and upper class families on both sides of the Atlantic in the late 18th and 19th centuries, and they usually were created by and for women. Until very recently, scholars largely overlooked these collections, even though they can tell us so much about musical culture, musical taste, and musical practice. Even so, I was extremely surprised to learn that such a valuable musical source had been sitting practically in my backyard and that nobody was doing any research on it. Then again, Norfolk is not exactly known as a destination of musicological research, and musicologists have done little to investigate the role of Virginia in the early Republic period. They've been more interested in Baltimore, Maryland, and points north 
or Charleston, South Carolina, and points south. I realized that I had true scholarly gold. Not only did the Myers Collection open up a musical history of a neglected region, it also differed from most other collections from the early 19th century because it belonged to a practicing Jewish family, not a Christian one. And the Myers family hailed from the Netherlands rather than from England or France. And this is really exciting. The Myers house still stands, and it is the oldest Jewish residence in the United States to be open as a house museum. I've been able to go to this house museum many times and be in the Myers music room, being able to see the very piano that they played on. Although my main research was focused on Parisian musicians, I began nibbling away at the Myers music collection. In February and March 2020, I gave my first public presentations of my research. I was back in Norfolk to talk at the annual meeting of the Music Library Association and to give a public lecture at the Chrysler Museum of Art. By that point, I had examined how much of the sheet music had been grouped and bound into elaborate albums. I had analyzed the contents of the collection and I had sketched out the musical personalities of each of the main contributors to the collection, Adeline, Augusta, and Georgiana Myers, and their sister-in-law, Judith Marks Myers of Richmond. I discovered that much of the Myers collection reflected the fashions of the time. That is completely normal. Scholars almost take for granted the notion that music collectors wanted to own music that was in fashion. But I also found that a substantial portion of the collection consisted of music that was much rarer, either because it was extremely difficult to play, or because it was not widely sold and distributed, or because it was by relatively obscure composers. That's really intriguing. We often talk about how women used music collections to fit in socially and to conform to expected gender roles. The Myers music collection shows that the Myers women didn't just want to conform, they also wanted to stand out. Adeline, in particular, aspired to professional level standards of performance. As I have been able to continue conducting archival research on the Myers since summer 2020, I've kept thinking about the ways that the Myers Music Collection both confirms and challenges what we thought we knew about musical taste, musical centers, and women's roles in the early Republic period. My current stage of research involves not looking so much at the music directly, but at the thousands of other documents the Myers left behind, things like letters, receipts, account books, and so forth. These documents sometimes mention music, For example, John, the Myers' oldest son, saved concert programs from a trip to London, and Adeline was always trying to get harp strings that could stand up to Norfolk's punishingly hot and humid climate. However, most often these documents are more useful indirectly. For example, I am able to trace travel patterns, and these offer clues as to where and how and why the Myers acquired certain pieces in their collection. More importantly, though, these travel patterns have shown me the world that the Myers inhabited. 
I've been better able to understand how they participated in and shaped the emerging mercantile class in Virginia in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And I'm seeing how they fostered a new sort of sociability, one in which private musical performances, akin to those in European salons, played a key role. Thanks to the Texas Tech Humanities Center Alumni College Fellowship, I can continue my research in coming months. I've already begun looking at Norfolk and Virginia newspapers and maps from the time, which have filled in many details about the music stores the Myers frequented and the musical entertainments that they supported. Right now, I'm also working on creating a book proposal, tentatively entitled At the Helm of the New Republic, the Myers Family and Musical Culture in Early 19th Century Norfolk, Virginia. One of the best things about this project is the way that I have been able to have engaged scholarship working with the folks at the Chrysler. I know that my research is already transforming their programming and our understanding of musical life, Jewish identity, and women's culture. At the same time, I have benefited so richly from their expertise and from their passion for the subject. If you want to learn more about the Myers House and learn a bit more about my research, you can visit the Chrysler Museum of Arts website, www.chrysler.org. Again, that is www.chrysler.org. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast today. That brings us to the close of another episode of Humanities Now. We hope that you'll join us for the next three episodes as we learn more from this year's Alumni College Fellows as they discuss their research and provide us with so many new perspectives on what it means to be human. As always, thank you to the Humanities Center staff, Justin Hughes and Callie Watson, and to Tyler Simpson for our original theme music. We'll see you next month.